Welcome to the Hills Baptist Podcast. We're so glad you're joining us as we see Jesus glorified, lives transformed and hope revealed in the Adelaide Hills and beyond. We hope you enjoy this message. All right, so uh, Esther 1, uh, 1, 1, the King's Banquets. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the the Ahasuerus, (laughs) yeah, off to a great start, who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting four seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. Now moving down to verse 9. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zitha, and Karkas, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring King Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. A bit lower in verse 16. I'm hoping the screen's following me. Then Memukhan said in the presence of the king and the officials, Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behaviour will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus has commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will all say the same thing, same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. All right, now start of chapter 2. Esther chooses queen. After these things, when when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been declared against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. 
And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This, is, this pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Hegai, Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Hegai, who had charge of the women. And, young, and the young woman pleased him and won his favour. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. And now down in verse 15. I really hope I haven't read too much. <sighs> All right. Last little bit. <laughs> when the turn came, so this is verse 15 in chapter 2. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go in to the king, she had asked nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus in his royal palace in the tenth month, tenth month, tenth, <laughs> tenth month, which is the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. This is the word of the Lord. Apparently. Thanks, Josh. That was a that was a doozy. <laughs> All right. So the book of Esther. Who loves the Old Testament? Who feels confident when they hear or read a story like that that they know what it's about? <laughs> One person. Great. Good. I'm glad you came here tonight. Um, before we launch into Esther, which we will. Um, I just want to say, like, last week we talked about the weapons and the armour that we've been given by God to fight the spiritual battles that we'll face. We talked about the armour of God and we talked about the reality that we have an enemy who is out to get us, but we have a king who has won. I don't know about you guys, but I had an interesting week after preaching that message. Anyone else? Yeah, a few people. Okay, let's just stand up. We're going to pray. Let's pray together. 
sometimes it's good just to acknowledge that, hey, like, yeah, there's a battle. But we have a king who has won the victory, who loves us, who is for us, and who reigns forever and ever. So let's just pray. Father God, we just thank you so much that you are our king. Jesus, we thank you that in your great love and in the Father's will, you gave up your life for us. You won the victory on the cross and in resurrection. And Lord, sometimes life is very difficult and very hard here. And there is a reality that we hope for something that is to come. Lord, I just pray that tonight by your presence, by your spirit, we would know you. We would know your closeness in the middle of difficulty and that we would sense your peace and your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. All right, turn to the person next to you and say, you are not a Persian queen. (laughs) Good. All right. (laughs) Um, If there are any Persian queens in the room, I apologise. But... There's a few, I've got, I've got a few caveats that I want to share before we start the book of Esther. Because sometimes when we grab an Old Testament story and we see these characters, we think, ooh, I like that character. I want to be like that character. Um, I can grab something about them and apply it directly to my life. So a few caveats first. You're not a Persian queen. Secondly, the book of Esther is a description of how God uses broken people. He uses people in difficult circumstances, sometimes beyond their control. It's not a prescription of how to live a godly life, and it's not a prescription for the Christian walk. It is a description of something that has happened in the past that we can learn from. Next thing, Esther is not a model of virtue. She's not a very good Jew. She doesn't, she's not, she doesn't follow the law very well. She has terrible things that happen to her, but she also commits unlawful acts according to the Jewish law. So she's both a victim at times, but she's also a perpetrator at times. So she's not necessarily someone that we can look to and say, oh, that is a picture of something to aspire to. That's not what Esther is and that's not what this story is about. Okay, that's why you're not a Persian queen. What the book highlights is that in the moral ambiguity of humanity, God still works. God still moves. God is still faithful. So that even when there is messy things and messy people, God is at work. So what Esther is, is an example to us. The book of Esther is an example of the faithfulness of the unseen God. So you may know the book of Esther is the only book in the Bible that doesn't even talk directly about God. It doesn't mention God. But what the author of Esther is doing, what he was kind of trying to get his original audience to do was to see that God is present in the day today. He's president, he's present, he is president, but he's present in the coincidences, in the small things, in the big things, 
and he is working. For the original audience of this book, they were the Jewish exiles. They were away from their homeland. They were away from their people. They were away from their place of worship. And they felt like we are away from God. And what the author is encouraging them to do is to to look at your life, look at the circumstances and see that God is in fact near. He is close. He is working things together for his good and his plan. The last little fun thing to know is that Esther is one of the only women in the Old Testament who is not part of the genealogy of Christ. She's not part of the line from Adam to Abraham to Judah to David to Jesus, which makes her story quite interesting and quite unique and quite curious. And we have to ask ourselves, why then through history have the church, have scholars, have people decided that this book, this book that doesn't mention God, this book that talks about a woman as the main character, this book that is set away from Jerusalem, away from the temple, away from all the things that are happening, why is it there? That's a good question to ask. So today we're kind of going to look at the start of the story. And thank you so much, Josh. I I did feel like I kind of did the dirty and gave him so much to read. But hopefully that kind of gives you a picture of the kind of the setting and the story. We're just going to unpack that. We're just going to ask ourselves three questions out of that. I'm going to give them to you now. So if you want, you can switch off. But the first thing, question one is, who are you listening to? So who are you listening to? Question two, how are you responding? And question three, can you see God? Three things. So the book of Esther starts in this luxurious, excessive party. The king, um, the, the Hebrew name for this king is Ahasuerus. Um, I'm going to use the, word, the name Xerxes, which is, is he's kind of the Persian name. That's what they were calling him because it's easier to say. And it also makes me think Xerxes is a Jerxes. So <laughs> it's easier to remember. Um, <laughs> but he's throwing this banquet and it, it, this festival that goes for 180 days. And he's basically, what we're told in verse 4 of chapter 1 is that it's to show the, his royal glory and the splendor and the pomp of his greatness. So this party that Xerxes is throwing is all about him. He's saying, look how great I am. Come, come and see. I'm amazing. And the the writer uses all these words to describe the setting. He describes the marble on the floors and the, the curtains and all those things to just kind of paint this picture that this is a very wealthy, very powerful man who can kind of do what he wants. And at the height of the feast, while drunk, he decides he sends seven of his servants to go and fetch his queen to put on her crown and to come and be shown off. Now, some commentators think that the reason it specifies talking about the crown as a piece of clothing is because that's maybe all he wanted her wearing. And that she was going to come in and he was just going to say, guys, look at my wife. She's so pretty. And Vashti refuses to be ridiculed. She says, no. Which is incredible for that time and place for her to say no. 
She says, no, I will not come into your presence, you and your drunk buffoonery friends. I'm not going to come there and I'm not going to be made an example of. And the king is angry because this is an honor and shame culture. And so while he wanted to bring his, his you know, wife in and that, that would shame her, it shames him even more that she would say no. So he's angry and it says his anger burned within him. He's furious and he wonders, what am I going to do about this? And then we see something really interesting happen. So the princes of the kingdom, they make this argument. Well, King Xerxes, the queen's wronged you, but she hasn't just wronged you. She's wronged every single man in the whole kingdom. If we don't deal with this now, this is going to just blow out of proportion and women everywhere are going to be disrespectful to their husband and that's just going to be the worst thing ever. Have you ever got in a conversation in a negative conversation where you're talking about maybe something that someone did and the more you talk about it, the worse what they did seems and it kind of gets bigger and bigger and, it, and you know, maybe they didn't smile at you at church and by the end of your five-minute conversation with your friend, it's like they'd murdered a kitten. Like they are the worst person. And so I think there's a bit of this kind of going on where Xerxes gets his kind of group of yes men together and they talk about this is the worst thing ever. This is so bad. This needs to be dealt with. And we might look at this story at this point and go and and condemn King Xerxes. We might condemn the people that advised him. But the reality is like all of us do that kind of thing. All of us overreact to perceived slights. And yes, we might not have the, the power of an ancient Persian king, but we all enact judgment against others at times. But anyway, the king, he's still drunk, presumably, and he issues this law that Vashti would never have to come into his presence again. And she's probably like, okay, sweet. But that her royal position as queen would be given to someone else, And not only that, that women everywhere must give honour to their husbands regardless of the husband's position. So the king has reacted against one thing and he's taken on this advice and it's blown out of proportion. And sometimes when we stand up for the right thing, like Queen Vashti arguably did, there are consequences and that sucks. That's a very real thing. The king's very pleased with his law. It gets enacted because he was surrounded by bad advisors, by bad men that gave him bad advice. They influenced each other towards arguably evil actions, towards coercion and control of others. And there's a great contrast, I think, for us here as Christians as we look back on this ancient king and we compare him to our king, King Jesus, who had every reason to enact judgment and justice against us, but instead chose mercy. He chose compassion. And so we look at this ancient king and we go, well... 
thank God for our King, Jesus. But the question for us here, the first question is, who do you listen to? King Xerxes had bad advisors. He had bad advice. Have you ever followed advice and ended up in a worse situation than before? Yeah, okay, good, some honesty. But I'm sure you have. The book of Proverbs offers some good thoughts around this. I'm just going to share a couple. In Proverbs 11, it says, where there is no guidance, and this is talking about good guidance, talking about godly guidance. Where there is no guidance, the people fall. But in an abundance of counselors, there is victory. And in Proverbs 19, it says, listen to counsel and accept discipline that you may be wise the rest of your days. Many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. So ask yourself this question, who am I listening to? Who are the people that I'm letting influence my decisions? Who do I go to when someone has offended me? Do I go to people that will give me good advice or do I, give, or do I go to people that I know will sympathise with me and let me bounce around my frustration and it doesn't actually help or go anywhere? When I was wrestling with the decision to come to Hills or not, I sought a lot of advice from a lot of people, from my family, from friends, from mentors, uh, from my wife, and ultimately, hopefully, from God. And it's in that shared wisdom of trusted people, I think, that we can start to discern like what it is that God's got in front of us and what it is that we can do. So don't be like Xerxes, who surrounded himself with people who probably, because of the precarious you know, situation in the court, couldn't even be honest with him. But surround yourself instead with people who will give you good counsel. So after a time, Xerxes decides, I need a new queen. So again, he seeks out, it says he goes to the young men of the court. Now, if you're like arguably the most powerful man in the world, and you go to the young men who are being raised up in your court of course, they're just going to tell you what you want to hear. So again, he's, he's not, he doesn't exercise a lot of wisdom, Xerxes. He just kind of goes to people that are going to give him what, what he wants to hear. But under bad advice, he has his officers round up all the beautiful women, young women or young virgin women from all over the kingdom. And he brings them into his harem so they'll get beauty treatments um, and kind of be, I guess, made to look, you know, really, really good. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently, this was fairly common practice. In, so this isn't like a specifically unique historical situation for ancient Persia. This is something that happened a lot. They also did it once a year with young men, where they would round up all the young men that looked quite nice so that they could castrate them and turn them into eunuchs that would be servants in the palace. So this was a brutal king... <laughs> who did what he wanted with the people that he was ultimately responsible for. So what happens is at this point in this story, we're introduced to two people. And these kind of are the, the main, if we want to use the word heroes, these are the heroes of our story. Mordecai and his young cousin, Esther. And Esther, unfortunately, is one of the beautiful young virgins that's rounded up and she's taken into the harem and she has no choice in this. And throughout her time in the harem, we see that Mordecai came every day to see her, to check on her, to care for her. 
probably to try and encourage her. And it doesn't say, but I think we can assume they had a good relationship where he genuinely cared and was genuinely looking out for her to try and make sure to the best of his power that she was okay. And I think we can agree that these circumstances that Esther finds herself in are not ideal. She's already in exile from her homeland. Her parents are dead. She lives with her older cousin. She's been taken against her will to live in a harem, essentially to wait. And she waits years until the most powerful man in the known world calls her in for a night to sleep with her. Like, that's what's happening here. And all the language or the Hebrew language in this starting sort of chapters about Esther, it's, it uses passive language, which means that everything is happening to her. She is not doing anything. It's just these events happening to her. So she's in a bad place. And sometimes, you know, I think definitely in, uh, in Sunday school, this story can be kind of romanticized. It's like, oh, Esther and the king, they fall in love. It's a beautiful love story. It's not. <laughs> this is a story of a young girl aged like 14 to 17 being taken away, being put in a situation beyond her control. She's unable to practice her faith, to follow the law. She can't, she's not even allowed to go by her own name. She can't be with her community. And I think that we could forgive her, of course, for giving up, for giving in, for being filled with despair at this. But she doesn't, and her response is curious. The way she handles herself is curious in all of this. She has something of a confident humility where people treat her favorably. She, it says she wins favor. She's given a position of honor. And when that night does finally come, it says that the king falls in love with her. He loves her. And so the story asks us an interesting question. Is how do I respond when things are out of my control? And to be clear, to be very, very clear, I'm not relating us to Esther, but I'm rather asking the question prompted by the story of Esther, like what do we do? when we're put in a situation that's beyond my control? And it's an interesting question to ponder. Do we blame God? Do we blame others? Do we despair? Do we wish that we were dead? Do we ask for help? Do we go by ourselves? Do we try and tell people? Do we turn to Jesus? And my encouragement to you is that if you are in hard circumstances and if you are in hard things that are beyond your control, that you would turn to God. That you would turn to Jesus who is close. Turn to his people, the church, who can support you and love you. And there's, I guess, a reality that in a lot of the struggles of life, there is no quick fix. There's no just magic kind of wand that we can wave and go, oh yes, my life is all good now. It's all sorted. And Jesus never says that he's going to do that anyway. 
But we can hold on to the promise of a God who is close, who promises that he will not leave us, who promises that we are his child, that he is for us and that he loves us. So if you're in a hard situation at the moment and you don't know where to turn, I pray tonight that you would just turn to Jesus. And like Mordecai, if you see people you care about, if you see your Christian brothers and sisters in hard things, be close, be present, be consistent. It says he shows up every day. And as the story goes on, it it becomes apparent that she's been in that harem for like a few years at least. So every day he kept showing up. He was consistent and he was near. And sometimes we don't know what to say. And I'm sure he didn't know what to say. Like, What can you say to your cousin who's stuck in that situation? But he was present. And sometimes church, that's what we need to be. And the last thing that we're going to try to pull out of tonight is this question of can you see God? There's this little episode that occurs right at the end of chapter 2 and Josh didn't read it, but it goes like this. Mordecai, so this is, this is after the fact. Esther's become queen, so she's, she's been made queen. And Mordecai is sitting by the gate, which is kind of, it's not a literal, like it is a literal gate, but it's a building where all the administration happens. So Mordecai must have been some kind of official or something like that. And he's in the gate and he overhears two men speaking about their plan to assassinate Xerxes. So they want to kill him. And Mordecai goes, well, I don't want that to happen. So he tells Esther. And because Esther is queen, she's able to tell the king. She tells Xerxes. And what happens is the, king, the king's life is saved and the two people that were going to assassinate the king get killed. They get put to death. Now, because of Mordecai's relationship with the queen, the king was able to be saved. And as the story goes on, we will see that it's helpful that the king is saved for Esther and for Mordecai and for God's plan and his people. What this story is asking us, like I said at the start, is can you see God? There are a lot of coincidences in this story. Vashti is removed and Esther becomes queen. The Jews are in exile, yet one of their own is promoted to queen. Mordecai hears the plot and tells Esther, who happened to be the queen, and she tells the king. And the message to the readers of that day, when it was written, to the Jews in exile, the people who are away from their homeland, was this. It's like, God is still here. God is still working. You just have to look for him. We may not know what he's doing. In fact, there's a very good chance we won't. But we can take assurance from the fact that God is working, that he has always been working, that he has always been fulfilling his plans and his purposes for his people. God is sovereign. He is in control. His ways are not 
Our ways, his thoughts, are not our thoughts. And he's working towards the fulfillment of his eternal purpose, the same today as he was in Esther's day. And that is that people would know their father in heaven. So the question is, when you look at your life, can you see God at work? When you look back over the things that have happened thus far and the things that are happening is, can you see him? If we always knew what God was doing, if he gave us like, here's the agenda, this is what I'm up to today, then there would be no reason for us to have any faith. And so what this story is doing is it's asking the people, do you have faith? that the invisible God that loves you is working for you and is working for your good and has a plan and his plan is good. So who are you listening to? Number one, how are you responding to very hard things? And I'm not trying to diminish things. And how are you seeing God in the details, in the mess, in the tricky circumstances. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you are good, that you love us, that you have good plans for us. Thank you that you weren't content to leave us in our mess, in our sin and in our brokenness. And Lord Jesus, that you died on the cross, that you overcame sin, you overcame death so that we could know you. And Lord, life is hard. There are things that, that happen that are, that are really challenging and we sometimes don't feel like there's a way out. And Lord, I pray that even when we're feeling like that, that you're not near us or that you've abandoned us or anything like that Lord I just pray that we would know that we would know deeper than the circumstances deeper than the struggles deeper than the pain we would know deep deep down that you are close that we are loved and that you have plans and purposes that you will see fulfilled Lord God I just pray for people in this room tonight that feel stuck pray for people that feel like they've been in the same place for a long time and it's not a place they want to be. Lord, I pray that you would be with them tangibly. They would know your presence. They would know your peace. They would feel you with them. And Lord, I pray that our faith would be strengthened, that we would have strong faith and deep faith, that even when we can't see you, that we believe in you. And Lord, we look forward in hope towards heaven, knowing that you will make right all things. You will give justice to every unjust thing, that your mercies are new every morning, that you reign, that you rule, that you are in control and that you are good. Amen. 
Thanks for listening to the Hills Baptist Podcast. If you'd like to partner with us in developing and equipping passionate disciples who love God, love people, and boldly share the gospel, you can do that at hillsbaptist.com forward slash giving. We pray this message has empowered you to live and love more like Jesus. Have an amazing day.